But um, I think that we can definitely move to Sam's story, which is about farm workers and uh, a court case being heard, right? Yeah. So uh, this is, uh, it, it was argued before the Supreme Court on Monday, which means it'll be a few months before a decision. But basically, it is um, at the core of the case was something called the access regulation in California. Now, this came about, it, it, it helps farm workers organize, and it came about because of the campaigning that the uh, UFW, the United Farm Workers, did, led by Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta back in the uh, 1960s uh, and, and the early 70s. Now, uh, basically... The uh, the UFW was not so much interested in legal protections a la the NLRA, which, of course, famously had a carve out for both domestic workers and agricultural workers right. because they wanted to get the support of the Jim Crow Democrats. And uh, both of those industries, agriculture and domestic work, were largely done by black workers. So it was basically a way of creating an apartheid system that enabled, that gave white workers rights, but largely excluded black workers. So fast forward to the 60s, and um, the UFW at first rejected the uh, legal reform approach, and uh, they were big on direct action. Like the Teamster said, they would strike to bring the uh the uh bosses to the table and they didn't have any the bosses couldn't file any unfair labor practice charges against the union because the farmers weren't covered by the NLRA now in the in the early 70s the calculus changed because once the UFW started winning contracts what happened was uh growers in California basically drafted in the Teamsters to uh, organize a management-friendly union. And the Teamsters basically waged a violent campaign against the UFW. Uh, Their mob ties were alluded to earlier. Right. And yes, it's good to have muscle against the boss, but... When you're basically doing company union shit, uh, not so good. Right. Yeah. So um, the UFW started campaigning to get a, uh, a law like the NLRA. And finally, in 1975, I think it was, this was basically Reagan's gov- governorship had ended. Jerry Brown became governor. And so the uh, UFW campaign for and won agricultural uh, labor rights. I think it was called the CALRA, California Agricultural Labor Relations Act. Uh, and it basically gave farm workers the same rights in California that the NLRA did across the country. Now, that alone was not enough because of the nature of the agricultural work. So in order to ensure that the workers had their rights, the, uh, the the agricultural uh, regulators in California passed a regulation saying that union organizers could come onto the property of uh, of the growers of the farmers for a very very small 
uh, portion of the year, and uh, they would be able to talk to the workers about their rights. So, as you can imagine, this has uh, rubbed some people the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) And with Amy Coney Barrett on the court, the uh it, it it seems like the calculus has changed and now there is there are definitely enough votes on the supreme court to undermine the uh the regulation the the argument that the uh petitioners have been making and the case is called cedar point nursery and that that they're one of the two uh growers who have been litigating this the argument that they have been making is that property rights are sacred basically right and property owners have the right to exclude whomever they want this violates that this violates the takings clause of the united states constitution therefore if california wants to uh grant access to union organizers they have to pay for it they have to compensate uh, uh, us, whatever. And, uh, now as, as you can imagine, there are many, many regulations that require the violation of, uh, the right to exclude. And, uh, I mean, I want to, I just want to interrupt you real quick, just to ask like, so why is it that they are like, they're supposed to have access to the farms specifically? Like what are the conditions that it actually, um, makes sense to have that? Ah, okay. Good, good question. A lot. So in, in the, the farm work, Sometimes the uh the the farm workers literally live on the property of the farm where they do the work and other times they don't actually live on the farm but they're migrant workers and they are bused to and from the actual farm by the boss to uh housing that is provided also by the boss so mm-hmm. there is basically like towns yes almost and in, in a lot of the cases, and why it's still necessary now, is a lot of these workers are migrant workers from Mexico, and many of them don't even speak Spanish or don't speak it that well. They, uh, there, I think there was an estimate that over 117,000 uh, farm workers in California, in the state of California alone, uh, their primary language is an indigenous language, which sometimes does not even have a fucking written form. So, wow, we're we're, we're seeing like these right wing think tanks make the argument that look, th- this isn't necessary. If the unions want to reach out to these uh, to these farm workers, they can use other means. And it's like, well, no, they fucking can't. They literally cannot. Just imagining right, so, them arguing uh, to be able to do like what they did in that earlier story we talked about. Well, we're going to put up a poster that says you're allowed to organize. Right. It, yes. it, it, it'll be in just English, <laughs> not even uh, Spanish, much less, you know, as you said, the, the myriad of, of other languages which may not even have a written component. And so this, uh, this has, case has garnered some attention because I guess like I was saying before, this threatens not just the rights of farm workers it threatens a whole range of of regulations and you know the way that the oral arguments shook out it doesn't look like the opinion is going to directly 
undermine other regulations, although it looks like the farm workers are not going to get these protections anymore. And that is awful. And I can get back to that in a second, but the, um, it will likely open up the possibility for all sorts of regulations to be challenged. And even if the courts say like, this is ridiculous. Um, I don't care what the Supreme court said in Cedar point. This is not at all like the situation here. It's going to cost a lot of money for, for, cities and states and the federal government to have to defend this. And on top of it all, like it's, it's just so sadistic because the access regulation, like I, like I said, it it only provides like a very small sliver of time to union organizers. Someone calculated that it's 4% of the year, 4% of the total year that union organizers can actually um, get on the property. And on top of that, on top of that, they petition first with state regulators. And so it's not like it's like a surprise and the growers can challenge it. The growers can challenge it. And if, if the union organizers, um, you know, if, if they do something they're not supposed to, they can get like barred from organizing in the entire region where they are. But so like, even if, the organizers visiting the property of these farms don't lead to uh, 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 CBAs or anything like that. Like we're talking about like, these are potentially the only people that these migrant workers are going to hear about their own rights. Like this is the only source of information, only source of credible information that they have about their own rights. And like, this might be the only person coming in to check on them to make sure they're not getting, you know, beaten, abused, um, victims of, yeah, stolen from victims of human trafficking. And, um, you know, the agriculture industry as well is increasingly dependent on the guest worker program. And as you can imagine, basically it's, for those who don't know that it's the H2A visa, it's called the H2A visa program. Right. And your status to legally be in the country is tied to your employment. So you have these workers whose the, their immigration status, their housing, their transportation, literally everything depends on their employer. So the incentive to just grin and bear it and eat shit is very, very strong. So now it looks like the only, literally the only source of honest information that these workers can have about their rights. And if they're lucky, you know, an organizer will come to them and that's being taken away. It it looks like it's being taken away. Right. I I will say there was a, there was a moment in in the uh, oral arguments where it looked like John Roberts was close to, siding with the libs. Um, but even if he does and assuming all the libs, uh, vote together, that's still five to four on the court. So it's, it's indeed a very grim situation. Well, and we, we've covered these workers being exploited before, right around the election time when Trump basically froze all the H2A workers, uh, wages because they couldn't actually stop the survey, uh, that, uh, that increased their wages. And, uh, encourage people to go back and check that out as well. Um, so I, I actually, I was looking into, uh, I was looking into that around the time of the inauguration 
because the, uh, the, the this is actually it's not often you you hear a positive story about this, but this is actually quite um, uplifting or at least funny. Um, so yeah, the USDA w- one of the last things they did under the Trump administration was they sent out a press release saying the oh the new H two A rules are being finalized, yay! And you know, Lena, as you said, it's um, it, it was is basically. It, it, it would have fucked them over. It would have frozen their wages. It would have done a lot of other um, really dark shit about like housing inspection and other things. But uh, so I, <laughs> I reached out to the department of labor right after the inauguration and the Trump, the Trump agencies, whatever it's like USDA, DOL, DHS, it's, it's a multi-agency thing. They never actually did the work to finalize the rule. So, <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> they, they got the ball rolling. It was never published in the Federal Register or anything like that, and so all their work was basically squandered. Oh, uh, because well, I guess because that's of good. their own incompetence. So they they <laughs> under yeah under the Administrative Procedures Act, which is the law governing uh, uh, federal regulations, they didn't get it in under the wire. So. Wow, LOL. Right, that's a that's an awesome little follow up from a story we covered a while ago. So, <laughs> yeah. long time listeners yeah. will be happy to to hear that flub um, for sure. One thing I was wondering about when I was reading this because we've talked about when we talked about the Pro Act before. One of the things that we mentioned is like one of the bigger glare, like which this is not to shit on the Pro Act. The Pro Act has a lot of very good stuff in it, and it would be great if it would pass, which the Senate will never do. But um, but uh, one of the biggest like things that stood out right away, like of being absent from that bill was extending the protections of the NLRA and anything else added in the pro act to agricultural workers was just glaringly missing from there when it seemed like that would be one of the most obvious things you would put forth in there. So one of the things I was wondering, like obviously California is, is, is one of the biggest, if I mean, I guess probably the biggest um, agricultural producing States in the country, but in the other states that have like, you know, really high agricultural production, has there been any sort of, are there any laws or has there been a movement to create similar laws like CALRA that would all obviously also be affected by this decision? Um, you know, that's, that's a really good question. And, uh, I wish I knew the answer to that. Unfortunately, I do not. Um, I, CALRA was certainly the first and it's, it might still be the only, but, uh, you know, just sort of racking my brain, like the only, uh, like the only other place it seems feasible are like places maybe on the West coast, like Oregon and Washington, but yeah. you know, well, some of the, the middle of the country States, um, and, and the Southern States. We'll have to look into that and, uh, include yeah. it in the, uh, episode um, chat channel of the discord. Oh, yeah. I, yeah mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to give bad information here sure, or yeah, yeah, no, of course just rely on whatever prejudices I have to say like, well, of course not. In of Kansas. An amazing <laughs> ag worker protection, but I would not be surprised if, if there isn't another similar law like that. I mean, cause one of the other things we'd talked about was like a while ago when we were talking about, COVID protections for these sorts of workers was how like there has been a movement, you know, around the country by agricultural workers to, to really try and get priority on vaccination lists because like the, the rate of, of, of COVID infection in, in 
in the industry is so much higher than than the average in, in most of the rest of other uh, fields of employment. And that just being met in almost every state, and, and I mean, Florida was the example that we, we'd been talking about with just silence and completely ignoring it. Um, but one of the things that strikes me, that struck me about this case was that like, you simultaneously have what seems to be, you know, to any sane person, a ludicrous suggestion by the plaintiffs in this case that like it is a onerous and horrible burden for them to allow uh, a union organizer onto their property for an incredibly small amount of time. But from the perspective of property rights, like they're not really wrong that like the absolute right of private property would be very much against that, which is just like one of those things where you run into like the direct contradiction between the right of private property and the ability to have any sort of reasonable society, even the like fucked up and hyper exploitative laissez-faire one we live in now. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that is a good point. I guess, um, uh, uh, one other thing that I didn't really mention in my rundown is that the case, um, the, the, the plaintiffs, the petitioner's case was taken every step of the way by an organization called the Pacific Legal Foundation, which, as you can probably guess, is funded by uh, billionaire shitlords and, you know, just throwing money at these assholes to uh, deregulate whomever to make a neo-feudal society. And um, not only that, th there was a flood of Friends of the Court briefs from all sorts of organizations that were similarly funded by people like the Kochs, like Sarah Scaife Foundation, et cetera, et cetera, Donors Trust, um, what have you. And uh, the Chamber of Commerce wrote a brief as well. And, and many of these groups spent a lot of money to lobby the Senate to confirm a third of the court. <laughs> so yeah. mm. it, it, it's just, it's, it's, I don't know. It, it, it really just, it, it is an imperfect encapsulation of how utterly, utterly broken uh, our system is. I mean, it's all, even if it functions by a technocratic liberal, whatever, or even, um, social Democrat, whatever, it's still like not a great system, mm -hmm. but it, it just really does, uh, illustrate what a, what an oligarchy, uh, we live in. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it just yet another example of, of this series of relationships and massive expenditures that in, and most other places would just be, be like, yeah, that's corruption. So that's illegal. But in the United States, like, no, no, this is just how things are done. This is fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is just the way to go about and things. I, I guess I should say one more thing, which is that, you know, it's possible that the Supreme court won't rule against the access regulation, but, uh, having sat through the oral arguments, uh, or not sat through them, listened to them or whatever. Uh, I, I, I would, I would not bet the farm on it. No pun intended. Oh, <laughs> right. that, yeah. that was something well, I was, I was wondering though, when, it, cause I was reading the, uh, the, there was a box piece that, that summed up the, the oral arguments and they mentioned that there was thrown out. There was the idea of, well, 
okay, so yeah, you do need to be compensated for the use of your land. How about 50 bucks? And, and I know, I know like that might not be hammered out into anything, but is that this, do you have any sense of if that's like a realistic thing where they could actually set a number? And if they did that, do you have any sense of like what the impact to the unions would be? And sorry for hitting you with these like broad. No, no, no. That's a good question. Um, th- I mean, the Supreme Court can really do whatever the hell they want, but right. um, the way that oral arguments go is, I mean, my general impression of them is it's it's almost like a, an undergrad philosophy class where there's a lot of like banter back and forth, and like it's like playing around with ideas. And that was Amy Coney Barrett who was who is asking the uh, California uh, attorney, like, you know, what if it was just like a $50 um, access fee? Like, what's so wrong with that? So I think she was just trying to suss out what the argument was and that I would not really look that much into that per se. But it is, I mean... Yeah, I I I guess that's that's my uh, take on that. Sure. 